Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. This is one of those petitions in the Lord's Prayer that always sounds strange to me. If you really think about what we're praying, we're asking God to make his name holy. And if you really think about the implications of that, it's kind of absurd. How can we ask God to make his name holy when he is holiness, right? He's not holiness and doesn't need holiness plus one. Uh, We're the ones who grow in holiness and sanctification, but God is the standard of holiness. But yet we, we have the reality that in the Lord's Prayer, we're commanded to pray this very request. So in terms of God's call for us and how we learn how to pray in this model of prayer, It's not a contradiction. So why would God want us to pray that he would be made holy when he's already holy? Uh, What what does Christ intend uh, behind this? So as we look at this, we'll see first knowing God and living for God. As we basically um, take the catechism to find uh, this Lord's there, this question answer in terms of those two points. And so first, in terms of knowing God, the catechism and instructing us to pray this request that Christ commands us to pray. So it's not like this is something optional or or something we can just explain away and say, oh, we really don't need to do that. Christ commands us to pray this. Then what the Catechism wants us to understand is that we know the name of God. Now to illustrate this, knowing the name of God isn't just knowing the different names of God. Now you go through scripture, that's Helpful. That's a good exercise to think about the different names of God as he reveals himself and what those names mean. So I'm not minimizing that. I think that's important. But to know the name of God is something that we can even think in terms of of our society. So for instance, I say the name Abraham Lincoln. We're not thinking about how do you spell Abraham and how do you spell Lincoln, right? We're probably thinking of things that he was involved in, maybe the Gettysburg Address. Uh, We think of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, We start thinking of the Civil War and the controversies around that. And we start going through these, these events that are associated with Abraham Lincoln. And all I've said is his name. I didn't hold up a picture. I didn't uh, call your attention to the Lincoln Memorial. I just said his name. See, that's the illustration that we can't abstract the name from the being of a person. And so it is with God. When we know his name and we're asking his name to be holy, this is telling us something about God and the implications of knowing him. But notice what the catechism is telling us. That we are calling out to the God who has created all things. That we have to really know and believe that he is a creator of all things. I mean, this is something where you think about his kingship, entering his holy city, Hebrews 12, coming to Mount Zion, all these sorts of concepts being conjured up in our mind 
as Scripture lays them out, we're remembering that God reveals himself by his name, but it's revealing his character, who he is. Now, in terms of of knowing God, uh, this is something obviously as Christians and humans, uh, God may know us exactly as to who we are, as we heard this morning, but we don't know God exhaustively, do we? We we continually uh, grow in the assurance of his providence. We continually see his hand at work in our lives. Uh, We can think back in our lives and see how the, the Lord has weaved out certain things that we didn't know how they would turn out, and yet we see the Lord's hand. So these are the ways in which we know God more and more. We, we start putting this together and saying, yeah, the, the Lord really is faithful when he promises to be a shield and defender. My goodness, look at all the good things he's done and, and how he's shown the holiness of, of who he is. And so we want to have a proper image of God. And so this is tied to understanding who our Father is in heaven. Remember last time uh, we talked about our Father and how there's, you know, the article or the lecture that was given or Eric Metaxas uh, put in the Socrates of the city where uh, the way you view your earthly father is the way you can view God. And he goes through a history of atheistic philosophers and draws the connection. Well, what we learned from that is that our understanding our viewpoint can try and reshape God. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's what we should be doing. But when we understand our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, it's calling to our attention the reality that we need to have a proper view of God. We can't conjure up an image of God based upon our own earthly concepts. We have to view God as God is. Uh, it's important to realize who we are as fallen creatures. We want to cast God in our image, but we need to remember that it is God who shapes us after his image. There's a significance the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, talking about the reality of how God is the one who is shaping us in the image of God, in the image of his Son, making us a heavenly people in this age. And so, so we understand then, we, we can have a concept of God that's not consistent. It's a pro- this is not a problem with God. It's not a problem with his word. Not a problem with his revelation. It's a problem with us. This is something we have a problem with as fallen sinners. Now we grow in this. So when we hollow his name, we're not asking God to make himself more holy than he already is. So it's important to understand that. God is holy. He's the essence of holiness. We, we can't... Um, make God more holy than he already is. But what we're asking is that the Lord truly reveres his name, that we understand who we are as his redeemed. So when we're asking God to, to hallow his name, we're asking God to confirm what God has already said. In other words, the Lord has said he will take a people and he will sanctify these people, he will glorify these people, he will bring them into his rest. So when we're saying, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, bring about this purpose, vindicate your name, show who you really are. Uh, We have a privilege of being part of this. Uh, We're asking God then, as we know him, that we truly conform to this reality. So again, it's not God making himself more holy, but it's conforming us to see his holiness to know him more and more as his redeemed. 
And so how does this fit in with the prayer? When we look at this prayer, uh, we see that it's in the context of hypocrisy. It's why I wanted to start at the beginning, that it's very clear at the beginning of chapter 6 that we don't practice our righteousness before man. What do we struggle with? Uh, we struggle most likely with pleasing people, wanting people to affirm who we are, to see the good deeds that we do. And so Christ is saying, don't, don't do this. Don't get caught up in this. Don't get caught up in little piety battles and, and trying to show uh, who's more holy than the other person. Now, it's not that, that we're against piety or we're against growing in grace. We're against making a show of this growing in grace just so we look good instead of seeking to honor the Lord. So yes, we do want to conform to Christ. I'm not denying that. We want to do it for the right reasons as we're exhorted, that we bring glory to our Lord. But as we hear this, we might think, well, okay, so we live our lives before the face of God as the Reformation places it or puts it, that you know, we live before his face, his context of holiness. But we also understand that as Christ tells us to pray, he tells us not to heap up these empty phrases as the Gentiles do. So verse 7 is, is reminding us, basically, we're, we're not to babble. That, that's what these empty phrases mean. Uh, and so we, we want to be direct. This is where the Lord's Prayer becomes pretty significant. It's very short, very terse. And so in terms of knowing God, we understand that, that we're not here babbling like the Gentiles. And so what does this mean? Well, some people point out that there's a contradiction in Scripture, right? This is what people who like to challenge the authority of God's Word like to do. They like to point out problems in the Word of God. And they say, well, doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us to pray without ceasing? Doesn't Christ give parables about persistence and what that means? And so... If Paul's telling us to pray without ceasing and Christ gives us these parables about being persistent in our prayers and requests of God, why is Christ telling us not to continually pray? Well, what does he mean? Is he in intention with the Apostle Paul? Uh, has Christ forgotten the significance of his parables of a persistent widow and these sorts of things? Well, again, it's important when somebody comes to you and brings these sorts of tensions or apparent contradictions in the Word of God and tries to rattle your faith, they say, wait a minute, let's look at the context of what Christ is saying here. So this babbling is a way in which the pagans, he says, do not babble like the Gentiles. So it's telling us something. It's not that Christ is saying that in the midst of turmoil, we don't keep praying to God. That's not what Christ is teaching us. He's teaching us, don't babble like the Gentiles. So what does that mean? We think about the prophets of Baal, the great uh, you know, challenge between the gods in 1 Kings 18, where you have the prophets of Baal and you have the true God, and the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and chanting and chanting and chanting, trying to get Baal's attention. But Baal never answers, and Elijah taunts them. You see, it's and understanding that the more you do, uh, the more ways in which you try and get the deity's attention, the more you can manipulate him. Think about Jonah uh, in the midst of the sea and the turmoil of the sea. What did the sailors say to Jonah? Hey, 
uh, why don't you try your God and, and pray to him because we're out here calling to our different gods and trying different methodologies to get our God's attention and, and maybe your God can actually bail us out of this. So again, it's that mindset. Let's heap up a bunch of words. Let's do a bunch of things and maybe some God will be able to take note of us. A commentator points out that even the Jewish tradition had 18 benedictions. Now, it's not wrong to bring benedictions to God or to praise uh, the Psalms to God. These are fine things to meditate upon. The problem was that this was a methodology of bringing these 18 benedictions in your prayer several times a day before the Lord so that God would hear what you have to say. So you're heaping up words to manipulate who God is or, or what God is going to do. You think of the Muslim tradition, praying five times a day with set prayers. You think of the Buddhists, where you meditate, pray to Buddha, so you have the courage to work on yourself. No understanding of sin, no need for redemption, no understanding of asking for forgiveness, but just trying to do these, these works and, and these actions to get the attention of the gods. Now I can go on, and I'm sure we can think of many more examples. But that's the important qualification that Christ is saying here. It's not saying that we don't continually pray and are persistent in our prayer. But he's saying, do not see prayer as a way in which you manipulate the God of heaven. Because notice what he tells us in verse 8. And again, this is one of those things with prayer that, that is so mind-boggling. And it reminds me that, that prayer is not for God. It's for us. Because the Lord says that your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. So think about that. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us the Spirit groans with words to, you know, deep and, and reaches up <clears throat> into heaven itself. And then it's the Spirit praying, interceding on our behalf. So you think about that, and you can understand that even in our moments when we, we feel too down, whatever we're going through, grieving, suffering, fatigue, whatever, that you have the assurance that the Lord is still hearing from our hearts and is tuned in. And right here, Christ is affirming that. Your Father knows what you need. So it's not like you're, you're going to pray to God and He's going to be like, oh yeah, I should probably take care of that. I forgot about that. You know, He doesn't have a to-do list. And so this is a reminder that when we pray, we have to pray in the confidence that we're doing this uh, to call upon God in the full confidence of who he is. The thing about what wisdom literature teaches us, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 2 reminds us we must realize that God's in heaven, we're on earth. Now this humbles us, but it's also reminding us that as we pray to the Lord that he makes his name holy, He's establishing that heavenly kingdom and seeing to it that it will be fully consummated. We think about the assurance that the Lord hears us when we speak. Isaiah 65, 24, uh, the new kingdom that he's bringing in. We think of Exodus 34, 5 through 8, that the catechism calls to our attention. That the Lord knows his people. He is long-suffering. He is merciful. This is part of what we're called to meditate upon when we think about knowing the Lord's name. Who is he? He is a God who desires to commune with us. And so what is Christ then teaching us about prayer in this? 
The temptation is for us to think of some sort of maybe a, a mindless mystery. And it's not. God wants us to bring our requests, our hearts before him. We don't have to heap up a series of words. We don't have to try and manipulate God. The Christian life is not just about self-improvement. It's about sanctification. But first and foremost, it's about knowing God, living for him consciously. And so that certainly distinguishes us from the philosophies of this age and this world where we just want to be better people. No, we want to be people who know our God more and more and willingly, joyfully serve him doing his will. And so when we say, what is this making his name holy as, as we know him? Well, it means that we're asking God to vindicate or fulfill his name. So we want God to bring about his redemptive promise. We want God to bring about the reality he's a shield and defender. We want to call to our own attention that God's name is not just a name, but, but he is truly El Shaddai. He's God Almighty. He is a God of war. He, he's a God who's able to accomplish his redemption. So again, you start thinking about the different names of God, Yahweh, I am, the God who continues to be. He's, he's not a God who comes to self-consciousness. He's not a God who has to learn. He is a God who is completely. And so as you start thinking about this and you pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, bring about your intention for this world. Bring about your intention for your church. Bring about your intention for me as I fit in, as a small cog in your plan. Lord, bring this about. Glorify your name. I, I want to be there as part of one who brings glory to your name rather than just being one who self-improves. Now again, in terms of being conscious of this, we will improve in the sense we will become more sanctified. We will become more conscious that we are called to live for God, that as we know him more and more, we desire to live out this gospel. Which brings us to our next point, living for God. That as we know God, we understand we live for God. And so this living for God is an understanding that we don't just meditate in the name of God. I mean, this, these are good things. It's good to think about the names of God. It's good to think about what God has done in covenant history. But again, it goes back to what I appreciate with Calvin in book three. As long as Christ remains outside of us, he's of no benefit to us, right? And so if we just have God as some abstract being who's just a name out there doing something, bringing this world to some sort of a goal, but there's no connection between me and the living God, well, what's the point? And that's what the catechism wants us to understand about this request. This is where we are in communion with our Lord. This is where we're asking that the Lord brings us to a place where we desire to do his purpose. The Lord sanctifies us, purifies us, brings about uh, his glory even in us, as we're dying to self, living unto him, conforming unto his will. And so notice then that as we live out our life, I think how the catechism reminds us that we don't blaspheme his name. Uh, normally when we think of blasphemy, uh, we think of words that, that we speak, right? And that's, that's true, that's certainly uh, part of it. But the catechism reminds us a part of the Lord's name and what he has done in our redemption is he's associated himself 
with us and us with him. And so Matthew, as he's going through blasphemy and as he translates it, another place we find it translated in Matthew's gospel is in chapter 15, verse 19, uh, where blasphemy is transferred as, or translated as slander, which tells us that when we're not living in a manner that brings glory to God, we're slandering his good name. And so this hallowing the name of God is in a lot of ways asking God to, to make us conscious of the reality of who we are in Christ, to conform us, think about his redemptive purpose, certainly be, be aware that Christ has redeemed, be aware that we are set apart unto our Lord, and we're asking God to conform us. We, we want, hopefully, we want to bring glory to his name, that, that we have new desires that have been placed within us by the power of the Spirit. Ursinus, uh, the writer of the Catechism, uh, when, when he writes on his Lord's Day, he says, we're also asking God to basically make that regeneration uh, continue to work, is, is his language. In other words, we think of the one-time blessing of regeneration, receiving the, the blessings of Christ, working within us the gift of faith, but it's a reminder that it's that same new birth that's continually at work in us. And when we're praying this, we're saying, Lord, conform me to your will. May I be one who brings glory to your name as one of your redeemed. Work out your purpose in my life. May I be conscious that I am your servant. These are the sorts of things that should be going through our mind when we make this request. And so when Christ instructs us to pray, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because we're starting with our Father in heaven. So we start going through these requests and thinking about it. We're not praying to the great king. I mean, we, we are praying to the great king, but that's not how he's defined. He's not defined as, oh, great sovereign, enthroned in glory. Now, we can address God as that. That's appropriate, that's true. But Christ wants us to think about the new family that we've been called to, our Father. And he's saying this to Gentiles. So this isn't just a Jewish blessing. He's turning to Gentiles saying, call out to our Father. Think about where he is. He, re he resides in the glory of heaven. But yet while we're here on earth, our prayers reach up into the glory of heaven. He hears our prayers for the sake of Christ. He doesn't need our prayers. He knows what we need. But yet he still is gracious enough to hear our prayers. So we say, our Father in heaven, make your name holy. Work out your purpose. And so this is something we're currently, we're understanding. We are those who need to conform to him. Uh, this is calling us to recognize where our life comes from when we put this prayer together. So as we're putting this prayer together, we're understanding, oh, you are the God who works out your redemptive purpose and your timing. So work it out. Now, as we go through this and we think about different commentaries in the Lord's Prayer, there's something else about hallowing the Lord's name. See, it's one thing for God to make a promise, right? I, I can make a promise. I can make all sorts of promises. I mean, who, who knows? I can promise that maybe if you follow me, we can fly and we can go to the moon, right? I mean, I can make that promise. 
But if I can't carry out that promise, you're going to recognize pretty quickly that I'm a fraud, right? You're going to say, well, he promised we could go to the moon and uh, we tried to do it and it didn't really work out so well, right? And wise people probably would have said, yeah, this guy's a fraud, I, I wouldn't buy that. And so that's the significance of hallowed be your name, isn't it? Because when God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15, he has to be strong enough to bring about that promise. Otherwise, he's a fraud. So in Genesis 3.15, the Lord promises he will conquer Satan. Genesis 3.15, he promises he will bring about his redemptive purpose and bring his people into his rest. When we talk about living out the gospel and being conscious of wanting to live before the face of God, for his honor and glory, what are we fundamentally asking him to do? Consummate your promise. In other words, we're not just asking God to sanctify us. This is going to be a, a lifelong process. And, and the depressing reality is we will never arrive at perfection at the end of our lives. In fact, I'd argue on our deathbed, we're probably going to have a greater peace after living a life in the Lord not in the sense that we're content in our sin, but, but a greater peace. And knowing that God knows us, we, we know what we've done wrong, we know we're forgiven, we know we have a long ways to go, but we long for that glorification. And so as, as we get older and we see that more and more, that there's so many things that need to be worked out, we grow more and more into confidence that the Lord really can glorify us. And so when we're saying, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, you promised to put down evil. You promised to destroy evil. You promised to conquer Satan. You promised to bring us into your rest. You promised to bring about your redemptive purpose in the true exodus. Do it. It's another way of saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? And so it's understanding that God doesn't just make a promise. He doesn't just make an assertion. He's a God who makes a promise, and he is sovereign enough and powerful enough to bring this promise to fruition. So when we pray this, we're asking the Lord, we realize the blessings of Christ now, right? The resurrection life of Christ is present within us. We heard that from Romans 6 this morning. We think of 1 Corinthians 15, 45, Christ being a life-giving spirit. We experience, we, we taste the resurrection victory, even as we struggle, even as we're, we're longing for more, we, we taste the spiritual blessings. But as we have this longing, we're asking God to hallow his name. We're not just asking to be more sanctified. I mean, certainly that, that's part of it, and I hope we want that. We're asking fundamentally, bring us into your kingdom. Lord, we, we want to walk around your heavenly city. We want to commune with you. We want to be at the heavenly banquet table. We want to see the eradication of evil. We, we want to see the fullness of our redemption and walk and enter into Mount Zion in its full glory and beauty. And so when we make this request, we, we might not think about all these things being brought into the Lord vindicating his name or making his name holy. But we're simply asking the Lord to validate, uh, to confirm, to bring about the fullness of his promises. And so, yes, this is tied to your kingdom come, but it's understanding here how the kingdom and the glorification 
is tied to the Lord's reputation. If he merely makes an assertion but can't bring about the redemptive promise, well, then the Lord's a fraud. And we know God's not a fraud. And so we're not just being cheerleaders for God in the sense that he's needy, but we're saying, Lord, work out your purpose. Fulfill what you have done. And so it's a reminder that the Christian life is not a life of defeatism. It's not a life of despair. It's not a life of, of just suffering. I mean, certainly Christ talks about bearing our cross, but it's suffering to what? To glory. Dying to self to what? Finding life in Christ. Walking after our Redeemer for what? To enter into his glory. To experience the full eradication or putting down of the common curse so we experience the full blessing of our redemption as God has promised. And so then we return then to that question. If God is already holy, how can God be more holy than he already is? Why, why are we making this request? Well, we're not asking God to be more holy. I mean, that really, if that's how we understand it, that, that's blasphemous. Because we're claiming that God's not holy then. So somebody comes to you again and says in the Lord's Prayer, see, the, the Lord's Prayer is a contradiction because God wants you to pray that he gets more holy. You say, no, that's misunderstanding the, the whole concept of what Christ is teaching us. Well, we're not asking God to be more holy. He, he's already holy. We're asking God to truly bring about the fullness of his redemption. We're conscious that what has been done in Christ is certain. It shows the reality of, of his promise. Even his own disciples is something else to point out to skeptics that the disciples are what? They're hiding in a room. They don't think there's a resurrection. They, they think Christ has failed. How can this be done? But in his resurrection, it confirms the promises of God. We're asking God to hallow his name. We're saying we want that resurrection life to take root deep within us. So we don't just know about God, but we truly live for God, desiring to glorify him, that he would conform us to his image. We're saying, hallowed be your name. We're saying, Lord, we know you are sovereign. We know you are mighty. And we want you to bring about the fullness of the consummation because only you are able to do this. So it's not us then asking God to uh, make himself more holy, but we're asking God to vindicate his name, to truly show definitively on that glorious day when Christ comes again that he is able to do what he has promised to do. And we are asking and desiring to be in line with his purpose rather than our own. So let us then walk in light of our redemption. Let us understand that it's not just about personal growth. It's not just about sanctification. Yes, that's part of it. I'm not denying it. But it's ultimately keeping our eye on the focus and orientation. We are redeemed in Christ Jesus. We have new life in Christ Jesus. We are a people destined to live beyond this age in Mount Zion. Let us continue to keep our affections, our focus on that reality. Let us continue to die to self, not seeing it as something that is punishment or despair, 
but calling attention to the living, living for Christ, dying to self, living unto the Lord as a glorious spirit that has raised Christ from the dead as at work within us. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com, that is urcbelgrade.com, to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.